You know, Kathy, uh, you handing out the, the party whistles, it, maybe, it makes me think that maybe that's something that we could uh, change in our worship is if we gave those to everyone, then I could know if you're following what I'm saying. You know, you just kind of, if you're tracking with me, you just blow your whistle. Um, but we'll maybe, uh, we'll maybe wait on that. So, um, you know, I have to admit that uh, I've always ha- found, uh, found Palm Sunday to be sort of a, a strange day in the church year. Uh, the beginning of Holy Week, and, and a big reason is uh, there just seems to be such this massive disconnect between what happens on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and what happens at the end of the week. They just seem worlds apart. Shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday and shouting crucify him on Friday. And and I've always just struggled with why this massive disconnect between these days. In the course of not even an entire week, we have this drastic difference in the way that Israel perceives and, and views Jesus. But if you, uh, if you stop and, and slow down for a minute, you'll notice that the Gospels actually spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the last week of Jesus' life. So from Palm Sunday to, to Good Friday and Easter, there's a lot of time and a lot of chapters and a lot of words spent in the Gospels talking about just that week. So Jesus has this entire three-year ministry and all of a sudden, we're going we're gonna to really focus in and put that last week under the microscope. Now, most of Jesus' ministry had actually existed uh, and took place north of Jerusalem. Most of it was in Galilee, and every once in a while during his life, he would draw near to Jerusalem, but he would never stay there for very long. So he would have entered in uh, on holy days like uh, the week of Passover, uh, but he always seems to go back north, go back toward, toward Galilee. But this time when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on this day that we know is Palm Sunday, he enters in very differently than he does before. He rides in and, and almost seeks to make his, his presence known to everyone that's there. Now, this, uh, this day that we celebrate as, as Palm Sunday in the beginning of Holy Week would have been Passover week during the life of Jesus. And the meal of the Passover was, was central to Israel's national and religious identity. It was central to the story of who, the, who they were. If you remember back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt... They cried out to God and and they asked for God to come and deliver them from the slavery and the back-breaking labor that had been forced upon them by Egypt. And the book of Exodus tells us that God heard their cry and he knew their pain and so he acted and he stretched his hand out in judgment against Egypt and he delivers his people. And right before Israel is freed from this oppressive rule of the nation of Egypt, God gives them this meal, this meal of the Passover that he tells them to celebrate. And it's called Passover because God had promised that this plague was coming, that all of the firstborn were going to be wiped out in Egypt. And they celebrated this meal, the Passover, where they took and they slaughtered these unblemished lands and they put the the blood on the doorposts 
And that was a sign that God's judgment would pass over the nation of Israel. And they're commanded to continue practicing this meal, continually remembering what God did for them in Egypt. And a lot of way, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, this meal of the Passover, it became sort of this central story that would narrate Israel's life every time they came under the oppressive rule of another nation. They would always point back to what God did in Egypt. So God rescued us from Egypt, so certainly he will rescue us from Assyria. And sure enough, he did. God rescued us from Egypt, he'll rescue us from Babylon. God rescued us from Egypt, he'll rescue us from the Persians and the Greeks and on and on down the line. And now God, just like he rescued us in Egypt, he will rescue us from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. Jesus rides in on Passover, riding on this donkey. And as he's doing this, he's making this statement. He's almost reenacting sort of this political theater by riding in. This would have conjured up the memory of David. David riding into Jerusalem after he had fled from Jerusalem when Absalom was seeking his life. And he gets word that Absalom has died and he's about to return to Jerusalem. And people keep coming out to meet him. And as Jesus rides in, the people, they recognize what he's saying. And so they hail him. Hosanna to the son of David. And they recognize that it's this fulfillment of this prophecy from Ezekiel, where, not Ezekiel, from Zechariah, where Zechariah says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so the people, they shout these praises. Shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. This word Hosanna, it was this, this cry of, of joy. This cry of exaltation and expectation of God's deliverance. When Jesus rides in, they know exactly the statement that he's making. That this is the one who has come to save us. This is the one who has come to rescue us from Rome. But what's so interesting is that when Jesus comes riding in on this donkey and he enters into Jerusalem, where's the first place that he goes? He doesn't go to the doorstep of Herod or, or Pilate and tell them, your days in rule are numbered. Now, the first place that he goes, this comes in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. This is right after the triumphal entry. Matthew writes, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes right to the very heart and center of their worship. Right to the core of their piety. And he says, this is sick. It's broken, it's tainted, and your God despises it. Jesus doesn't lead this tirade 
against Rome. He says, the problem is not out there, Israel. The problem is you. You're the ones who killed the prophets. You're the ones who are corrupt. You're the one whose worship has become worthless in the sight of God. The problem with Israel isn't Rome. The problem with Israel is Israel. It's not about them. It's about you. You know, I've uh, I found that we frequently we cry out to God. God save us. Now, we do this in in any number of ways, but often what we mean by this is is God save me from that thing out there. And so we, we often have this laundry list of people who, who are making life for us miserable. And it's not just in the church. We, we do this all over. We see this in politics all the time. The people who are making the world such a terrible place, well, it's those darn liberals, right? It's the Democrats. And, and if it wasn't for them, then, then things would be just fine. Or if you're on the other side of things, it's, it's those darn conservatives who are trying to take us back to the 1950s. We just need to get rid of them. If it wasn't for them, our lives would be better. It's always about someone else. If you're poor, it's those greedy people on Wall Street. If you're wealthy, it's those poor people who keep leeching off the system. Right? We hear this all the time. There's always something out there that needs to change. And then all of my discontentment, my dissatisfaction, my unhappiness in life would all go away. It's always about them. And I think a big reason that we do this is because we're afraid. And, and not afraid of, of some big bad enemy out there. I think we do this because we're afraid of what's in here. We're afraid that if we started to look inward, we might find something that is really unpleasant. That we might find that one of the reasons that we're so unhappy and discontent is because there's some brokenness in us that we haven't dealt with. Now that's not to say that there isn't oppression and that there isn't pain in life that that we can't avoid. But you see, Jesus never lets us pass the buck. He doesn't let us just put the problem off on someone else. Before ever dealing with what's out there, he forces us to turn inward and deal with what's in here. It says it's not about them. It's about you. You're broken. You're sinful. It's not about them. It's about you. It's about me. I remember uh, during my last year of seminary, and I was finishing up my classes, and I was also uh, working, uh, working at a church part-time, and I was also going through this whole process to be placed in a congregation. 
And, and I remember growing increasingly frustrated with how this whole process was going. I, I wish that there was more communication, a little bit more transparency with everything that was going on. And all of this, it allowed me to sort of build up in my mind this narrative that basically said the, the powers that be that were in charge of my future were just hell-bent on screwing me over in one way or another. <laughs> you laugh, but that is actually what I thought. And so I remember as I'm, as I'm trying to finish up classes and trying to focus on those studies and, and trying to uh, give my time uh, to this congregation that I was helping out and all the while trying to be a good husband and care for my wife who was with child, I had this constant looming anxiety about my future. Now, thankfully, I was wrong about, about this whole process. But I just remember the, the anxiousness and the frustration continuing to grow. And so I spent a fair amount of time uh, talking to, to a counselor that worked at the seminary, and, and I would kind of air these grievances and these frustrations with him. Now, thankfully, this counselor of mine, he grew up in the 60s, so any sort of uh, millennial, anti-establishment, institutional skepticism that I had, he had more. <laughs> And so he did a really, really fantastic job of, of just hearing me and listening to me and, and making sure that I felt that, that my feelings were valid. And, you know, he, he, he once he, he said to me as we were finishing up a session, he said, you know, there are some things about this whole process that, that could change. And, and, and you're probably right. There, there could be more communication, and, and I think people would benefit from more transparency. But then he said this that really, really frustrated me because it was so true. He said, there's a lot about this process that you don't get to control. But what you do get to control is what you're going to do with that frustration. You do get to control how you're going to operate in the midst of this. And I remember hearing that and leaving his office and just being like, ah, no. <laughs> like, I, I didn't come here to actually, like, take responsibility for anything. <laughs> like, I just wanted to feel really justified in my anger. It's not about them. It's about you. It's a lot easier, I think, to place our problems on someone else. Some institution, some group of people, someone out there that is making life miserable for us. It's a lot easier to say it's about them. But Jesus has this way of entering in and, and kind of poking us and prodding us and twisting our arms until we cry uncle or perhaps even crucify him. He forces us to turn inward and to confront our brokenness and our sin. He says it's not about them. It's about you. 
When Jesus rides in and, and he goes to the temple and, and condemns the worship there, this is really just the first of this tirade that he goes on against Israel. You'll notice that after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, his teaching, it takes on a little bit of a different character. It has this, this sharpness to it. And he goes directly at the heart of Israel's religion and its religious leaders. And Jesus, everything up until his crucifixion, everything during Holy Week, it's as if he is provoking the nation of Israel into rejecting him and crucifying him. Because he has to. He has to provoke them. He has to provoke them because they have to reject him. And they have to crucify him. And they have to do this because Jesus has to save them. And without provoking them, without forcing them to reject and kill him, he has no way of saving them. When we encounter Jesus in his word, he will provoke us. He will poke us and he will prod us. And we will plead with him to stop. But he does this that we might confront the worst in ourselves. So that he can crop it up and go and bear it on the cross. Because unless he provokes us, there's no repentance, there's no turning to him. There's no falling at his feet and crying out for mercy. Jesus enters into our lives and he provokes us. He forces us to turn inward and confront what's in here so that he can save us. And when we encounter the salvation that he brings, then we can truly confront what's in here. Not in fear, but in hope. We can confront it in hope because we know the one who has already saved us. And we know the one who's going to bring healing for our brokenness. Amen? Amen.